With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, and welcome to the Transfer Window Podcast. We bring you the stories from the biggest clubs in world football, as well as adding insight and analysis of all the issues affecting the game. I'm Ian McGarry and I'm joined, thankfully, by our breaking story and newsmeister, Mr Duncan Castles, for Monday's edition of this particular pod. And we're going to bring you news, news, news. The transfer window is open, people. Therefore, you're going to be getting an avalanche of information from us in the next three months. Now, Duncan, we're going to start with, um, I think, the biggest story uh, of the last 24 hours, never mind uh, breaking now, and that is the admission of Kylian Mbappé, PSG's star striker, that um, he may not remain at the Paris club um, next season, although his quotes were, as usual, a little bit sort of um, obfuscated in terms of uh, them being clear or not. His exact words were, I would like to take more responsibility. Whether that's at PSG or not, that's my aim. Um, what do you make of that, Duncan? Is Mbappe effectively up for sale or is he putting himself up for sale in terms of the current market? Look, Kylian Mbappe is definitely not up for sale in the sense that Paris Saint-Germain will not sell that player. Uh, do not want to sell that player. Um, they know they have the the best young footballer in the world, in the ranks. Um, and they know they have the player who is heir apparent to Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi in the ranks. So, um, you know, uh, Qatar uh, as a country, as a club owner, are a group that do not sell players um, unless they want to. Um, we've seen how uh, they've acted with um players this season in the sense of having one of their top midfielders refuse to uh, sign a new contract with them, Adrian Rabio, and uh, the punishment which was which was sent down from Qatar was not a decision um, by the coach and the coach has made it clear, um, your, your favourite Tam Tuchel, that it wasn't his decision, um, that uh, Rabio be excluded from training. Um, as a punishment for not signing a contract. So that's a sense of, of the way they control players. We obviously know that Neymar has been pushing to get out of Paris Saint-Germain for over a year now, um, and uh, Qatar has precluded that from happening, despite there being a standing offer um, in place from Real Madrid for him to return to Spanish football and, and finally be united with Florentino Perez, who's pursued him for years. So um, this is not clearly not about PSG wanting to sell Kylian Mbappe. What it is about is Kylian Mbappe flexing his muscles and um, making it clear that he perceives himself as being the player I've just described, i.e. the best young footballer in the world and the heir apparent to Ronaldo and Messi, and, uh, and saying he wants more responsibility um, and for responsibility, read 
power and status. Does it also translate to a better contract, Duncan? I think that's the na- that would be the natural response from Paris Saint-Germain would be to go to Mbappe and say, um, what can we do uh, to make you happy? Um, are you looking for a new contract? Because if you're looking for a new contract, we would be delighted to um, extend our control over you um, for the next five years. Um, and we'd be prepared to increase your pay to do so. I don't think any of those things are complicated. Um, I think more interesting is what Kylian Mbappe actually wants to do. Because when you say something like this on a, on a, on a platform like that, um, the whole world media is watching, the whole French media is watching, the whole world media is alerted to what he said because he was picking up prize for the best uh, French player of the season. Um, uh, you know that every club in the world will hear those words and start asking questions about whether um, Kylian Mbappe is actively trying to get himself out of Paris Saint-Germain. And if you are in charge of recruitment at any of the clubs who have the financial wherewithal to sign a player like Mbappe, which are basically the big Champions League clubs, plus the um, the biggest of the clubs who failed to qualify for the Champions League, i.e. Manchester United, then you say, you examine that and see if there is a realistic possibility of doing the deal. You start talking to Mbappe's people, um, you start finding out whether he actually wants to leave, how much it would cost in terms of salary to get him, whether he thinks he can get out of Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, and if you get positives from Mbappe, then you start going to Paris Saint-Germain and, uh, and seeing if there's any way in which they could be convinced um, to sell him. N- not in any great, great expectation that would happen, but you will go and find that out. Because if you're in the market for... If you're in the market for a striker already, as, for example, Manchester City are, as Barcelona are, as Real Madrid are, then um, you, you dump uh, whatever alternative you've got lined up, whatever player you have lined up as your best choice at present. And you say, if Mbappe is really available, he's the best choice. Can we do it? Um, and Mbappe is, will be, and Mbappe's advisors will be well aware of that circumstance. We know that Madrid... Um, want the player um, we know that Madrid were very close to signing Kylian Mbappe when he left Monaco um, and in fact had a deal agreed with the player and with his father um, that he would come to the club which the player uh, and his father then reneged on um, when Paris Saint-Germain came in on the basis that Paris Saint-Germain was an easier club to move to um, that they were concerned that if they went to uh, Madrid in a summer in which um, it looked like Cristiano Ronaldo might be moving, that uh, Killian would come in as the um, successor to Cristiano Ronaldo and would be subject to unnecessary pressure on him to perform as being perceived as that successor. Um, and when Paris Saint-Germain became a live option for them, their, um, the rationale was, if we go to Paris, Neymar will be the big star, um, so we don't have that pressure on us. But we get to play for a club that Killian supported as um, as a kid. Um, we get to move to Paris, which is the area it comes from. And we continue playing in the French League, which is a league we know um, we play well in and we know there's not there's, there aren't going to be any adaptation problems. So... 
the, the kind of stratospheric success that um, Mbappe has, has achieved at Monaco would be likely to continue there. And that's pretty much as it's panned out. My question is whether Mbappe actually wants to move this summer. And, and I have serious doubts about that on the basis of um, questions I'd asked two people close to him um, in the past month. Um, when this talk about Madrid making a bid this summer, I, I checked and um, what I was told was that Mbappe, Mbappe's plan was to do one more year at Paris and then um, look to move elsewhere. Now, it could be that plan's changed in the interim. I need to check with my sources again and find out. But my suspicion would be that it hasn't changed and this is a power play on Mbappe's part rather than uh, a an attempt to get out of a club which, as I started this you know, analysis with, I think is essentially impossible to do because Qatar will not sell him this summer. So we have um, managed to um, articulate what we call the Nico Gaetan ruse in which uh, in five consecutive seasons he was linked with a move to Manchester United. My interpretation of this would be the Kylian Mbappe ruse because uh, my sources um, tell me that, like Duncan's, he is not necessarily interested. His priority is not to move away from Paris Saint-Germain. However, make no mistake, um, when he mentions that he wants more responsibility, quotes, at PSG or somewhere else, that's a very deliberate statement. And as Duncan has said uh putting the world's biggest clubs who can afford them, and there are only three, let's face it, um, who can afford or would um, spend that money. And those are Real Madrid, Manchester United, Manchester City. Um, on alert as to whether or not probably the, the player with the best potential, if not one of certainly the best three players in the world, is currently available for transfer, on alert. Um, however, I don't believe that... Uh, this is a play to, to move. I think um, when he says more responsibility, he means I would like an upgraded contract, preferably on the Neymar terms. Um, I would like to be seen as maybe someone who's captain of this club as well, because at a very young age right now, he has got no reason to hurry to move abroad um, from his natural, um, uh, both his country and his city of birth. And um, even though PSG have presented him with frustration with regards to their Champions League's lack of progress um, in the last two seasons. I don't think that he himself sees, him, sees that um, he doesn't have plenty of opportunity in the future to win the Champions League and indeed achieve all the things that he wants to do in football. So I, I do think that this is a deliberate ploy to um, get PSG to come to the table and say, OK, what do we need to do to um, continue your association with us? Strangely, though, if I were Mbappe and his um, representatives, I would try and reduce the exit clause in his contract because at the moment it is sort of very, very high and would put off most clubs. And, of course, the Qatari owners of PSG would resist that. But there is a, a mechanism by which Mbappe could um, say, well, look, you, if you reduce my... Uh, wage demands in order to give me a more realistic get-out clause then uh, and also pay me my salary should a club come in and you accept it, then that's a way of doing things which um, might smooth 
um, his departure in the next year or two. What we know is that Real Madrid, as Duncan has mentioned, um, are, are, you know, effectively has a deal done with the player and with his father. And in fact, they even had lawyers looking at the loan deal from Monaco to see if they could actually um, use up that and take him to Real Madrid before he made his move to PSG uh, a, a confirmed uh, registration. So I think what's happening now is um, we've got a, a catalyzed situation in the transfer market, which of course has opened. Um, we know that Real Madrid have a massive uh, transfer kitty to spend. Mbappe would be their number one choice, but of course Luka Jovic from Eintracht Frankfurt has been heavily linked to Real Madrid in the last three days um, for a move around 52 million euros, which um, would make sense for Madrid given that um, Karim Benzema is clearly the wrong side of 30 and, and, and kind of in the uh, twilight of his career despite the fact he's scoring goals. But it's been a disastrous season for Real Madrid and they need to um, change that. And Duncan, I think in changing what Real Madrid do this summer, the position and both the mandate and authority of Zinedine Zidane is going to be central to that. Yes. Look, Madrid won nothing. They're on their third managerial appointment of a season. They finished uh, 19 points behind Barcelona. Um, as you say, the, the solution, which has always been Florentino's Perez's solution in times of trouble, is to spend big. Um, when Zidane agreed to come back to the club, uh, I'm told he had a, a meeting with um, Florentino Perez in Portugal in which he um, made as a condition of, of his return that he would have the right to veto over any um, transfer move, both in and out of Madrid if he came back as coach, and that um, 200 million euros of the budget would be for his um, personal use is probably the, the, the wrong term, but he would have control of 200 million in terms of uh, players uh, coming in. Now, what I'm hearing in the last uh, 10 days or so is that there are significant tensions between Perez and Zidane over what actually happens uh, in this window, both in terms of incomings and also in terms of outgoings. And that Zidane is not happy because he feels that Florentino Perez has started to renege on that promise that he would have um, essentially a final say on everything that happened with his squad. Um, and, and certain favourites of Perez uh, within the squad are to be retained, even though Zidane would like them to be, uh, if not sold, then loaned, um, so they're not part of his squad for next season. And also that Zidane isn't happy getting the same um, degree of freedom over the choice of players coming in as he expected to have. Um, I think there was a very interesting quote from Zidane uh, last week in the build-up to their final Liga game when he, he was actually asked about Kaylor Navas specifically um, and whether it was uh, the end of Navas at Madrid as has been reported. And I can tell you that Thibaut Courtois has indeed been informed by the club that he will be first choice goalkeeper next season. Although I'm told he's not had that, con that conversation with Zidane himself, which, which is telling here. But Courtois has been assured he would be first choice. Um, been told he had to buck up his, his, um, his thinking 
to a certain extent, but he would have the he would be a top goalkeeper, and um, they he was important to the plan going forward. What Zidane said when asked about Navis and transfers in general is, "It's my decision. That is clear as water. I'm the coach, and I will always do what I want to do. If not, I'll leave." Now, <laughs> that is a warning, I think, to Florentino Perez. Um, uh, put on a public public platform uh, not to mess with Zidane when it comes to the transfer market. In the background to this is a suggestion um, that Zidane may even consider leaving Real Madrid this summer if he does not get what he wants in the market in terms of squad construction. Um, the, the position that he's, I'm told, is uh, he's been most strongly uh, looking at is that of France national team coach. Why would the France national team coach open up if Didier Deschamps left to go to Juventus? And I know for a fact that Deschamps has been talking to Juventus for several weeks ahead of um, uh, the, the decision that was made uh, for Massimiliano Allegri to step down last week, something we flagged up to you uh, on the Transfer Window podcast last Monday, I think. Um, so, uh, Deschamps is a strong candidate for Juventus, which would open up the France national team job. Uh, Juventus, as well, I wouldn't rule out as a possibility for Zinedine Zidane, given that it is a club he has um, obviously a strong playing history with. It's a club he has told friends he would like to coach in the future. And it's a club that has an interest in um, having Zidane as coach and obviously has a vacancy at present. Um, but the fact that there is... Um, Juventus open at present and possibly the France national team if Deschamps goes to Juventus allows um, Zidane to use the kind of ruse, the kind of playing card that Kylian Mbappé is using with Paris Saint-Germain which is um, there are other people in the market who are interested in me there are other jobs and positions that are of interest to me you made me a promise about my importance to this club uh, when I came back here, when I signed for you, I expect you to fulfil those promises in this transfer market. Um, so this this transfer window uh, this summer, I think, is is opening up to be one of the most fascinating we've seen for years because there's so much pot potential fluidity in it. You've got clubs like Madrid, you've got clubs like Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Manchester United, Juventus, all of whom have failed. Um, it, to meet their targets for the, the past season um, and are prepared to use their huge financial resources uh, to fix things for next season. Um, so that the, the potential for hugely surprising moves and hugely expensive moves I think is bigger than, than we've seen in a, in a market for years. I swear, Duncan, if Niccolo Machiavelli was alive today, he would be the smart version of Mino Raiola, given these machinations and uh, different politics that are being played out. Um, I think it's absolutely true that, uh, listen, it would be unprecedented in the history of Florentino's two terms as Real Madrid president if a manager managed to assert full mandate over transfers. Um, because we all know uh, that Florentino... Perez is, if there's one thing he values more than anything else, it's um, his ability and his uh, authority 
to sign the superstar players who then go into the Real Madrid team and uh, contribute to them being successful. Now, I'm not saying that he's not he's not going to allow Zidane his head with regards to who comes in and who, come, who goes out this summer. But I would be absolutely flabbergasted um, as someone who's in contact with other executives at Real Madrid um, on a weekly basis if Florentino allowed Sudan to have the final say on everything. Uh, I, I do think that that would be, un, un, well, be unheard of, but also be un, unthinkable for Florentino. He may indeed um, try to entreat Zidane into thinking that indeed that he has that power. But in actual fact, it will be um, Perez that makes the final uh, decision on anyone coming in. Uh, now, we know that they have a, a, around, well, between three to 500 million euros to spend in this window, should they, they choose to do so. Uh, and as we've discussed already, um, Mbappe may or may not be one of those who they're hoping to sign. Um, we know that they are interested in Paul Pogba, in Aiden Hazard as well. Uh, and that uh, even uh, David, well, you, there are there are options all over the place, but there also are, are players need to move. And I think one we need to talk about, um, Duncan, your old favourite golfing partner Gareth Bale, who was I think uh, disrespected and disparaged by Zidane after their two 0 defeat uh, on Sunday, in which he said, even if I was a Liverpool substitute, Bale would not have been the one I'd have brought on. Now. Does Bill leave on the basis of professional self-respect or does, as some people have reported and indeed you believe yourself, does he, will he just set out his contract at Madrid and play golf rather than football? Well, it's as clear as you can like that um, Real Madrid won Gareth Bale. As out. clear as water, as, as, as Zidane said himself. Indeed. indeed. <laughs> um, I, you have, you know, the club has been trying to get him out for a long time and you've got the coach doing that in terms of not bringing him on um, and then stating that he wouldn't have brought him on even if he was if, if he was forced to do so um, you, you know where you stand there um, Bale it's a fascinating situation I did, did a, a, a piece in the transfer market um, for the Sunday Times this weekend and I led on, on the fact that you've got Gareth Bale um, Alexis Sanchez and Philip Coutinho who respectively were top captures, you know, most expensive wages in the Premier League, uh, record deal out of the Premier League and the first £100 million, uh, transfer uh, recently. Um, Bale was the subject um, of Manchester United's interest for consecutive summers. If, if we had this situation now um, and Manchester United were in the same position they were a year ago, I'm sure that they would be um, running to Madrid to take Gareth Bale off Florentino Perez and Zidane's hands, but they're not anymore. And um, Madrid would like to get a transfer fee for Bale, but when you do what you're doing with them, uh, you can see that the, the more realistic stance is the one that I'm being, I've been being told about by uh, people, uh, sources at the club is that um, they will basically allow him to go to anyone who takes his huge salary off their hands. So they're prepared to let him go on loan, uh, potentially even for a free transfer, just to get him off the books. Now, there was a, there was a report in, uh, on one Spanish radio station 
yesterday, which I don't know if it was true or not, but they were reporting that what Bale had said to his teammates was, I will sit here uh, for the duration of my contract, uh, collect my cash and play golf if that's what they want, want me to do. Um, but I'm not going to leave this club. And certainly the indication from people around Bale has been he does not appreciate what's happened to him, does not intend to leave, doesn't want to go elsewhere. Um, perhaps that can change. Perhaps some, some club can present to Gareth Bale a proposal that's attractive to him. And this kind of um, uh, Zidane water torture, let's call it that, um, that's happened over the, the, the last months and has happened over the last year of Madrid of him being disparaged and his um, his attitude uh, towards the game, his injury record being brought up, um, him being scapegoated as a reason for Madrid's problems. Maybe he will get tired of that and maybe he'll decide it's better to go elsewhere. But certainly at the moment, it is an immense problem for Madrid um, to have this on their hands. When you decide to get rid of a player like that, uh, and the player doesn't want to go, um, that makes things extremely complicated. Uh, and we wait to see if, if anyone can be convinced to take on that salary, which I'm told is 22 million euros net um, a year, uh, in return for getting a player who, the, you know, the, the Zidane water torture is actually right here. He is. He does have an horrendous injury record and he does seem to be more enthusiastic about playing golf than he is about playing football. So it would be a big gamble for anyone taking that salary on. I'm just thinking out loud here, Duncan, but isn't St Andrews quite close to Dundee? I'm talking about the it golf is. course, not, not, not the town. It is. So what about what chance the Arabs, you know, now they're in the Scottish SPFL playoffs, getting themselves Gareth Bale for next season? What do you think? Well, the training ground um, is the university playing fields. It's actually off, overlooked the golf course. So, you know, perhaps... Oh, well, there you go. It's a match made in heaven. I think I think we've solved the problem. Perhaps Robbie, Robbie Nielsen can sell, sell it to Gareth Bale and say, look, we, well, can, we, can, we can pay you um, £22,000 a year net. Uh, but you get as much golf as you like, Gareth. How do you how do you fancy moving to Canada? I'm, I'm texting Jonathan Barnett as we speak. Um, how do you solve a problem like Gareth Bale? Uh, and it's something that Real Madrid, I agree, Duncan have to do. Um, I still think there's an opportunity for him at Bayern Munich. Um, I think that well, I know for a fact that Bayern Munich made an inquiry last summer about his availability. Um, Bale stood firm and said no he wanted to find out what the new coach or indeed with Real Madrid's case coaches had in mind for him um, during the course of last season clearly that's not worked out Zan's now back he and Zidane clearly um, are at loggerheads with regards to um, the fact that he doesn't fit into Zidane's plans uh, for the next uh, two or three years or two years of his contract he's got left I think Bayern could certainly afford to take him on loan uh, and pay around half of his salary. Alternatively, Real Madrid could just take the hit and pay uh, him off for the, the two years remaining his contract, which would cost them around um, 66 to 70% of that 22 million euros net per season just to, get him, just to get rid of him. But again, if you think about it, maybe that's worth it. Bayern, as we know, are looking to replace Ribery and Robin. 
Um, we have reported on the transfer window podcast about their interest in Wilfred Zaha and Lido Zani um, from Manchester City, as Duncan uh, revealed last week. Now, Bale is obviously older and maybe more of a risk regarding injury, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but he's the kind of player who, um, who Real, uh, sorry, who Bayern's um, both training process and um, uh, sports science unit can actually help. Let's just look at the fact that Ribery and Robin have had very extended careers, along with other players at Bayern Munich, to be fair, um, in terms of the way that they um, annotate and then um, uh, allocate uh, certain training regimes and also treatment for uh, especially the soft muscle tissue injuries that Bale has suffered from. So I think there's definitely a prospect for, for Bale at Bayern Munich. Should he um, decide that he does want to play a bit of football alongside his golf? I'm not sure what the courses are like around Munich, but I'm sure you'll find somewhere nice. The Germans love their golf. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think Bale. Um, I agree with you. Um, Duncan is has got to reach a solution and make a decision on what's most important in his career. Now let's add another um, ingredient to this particular mix of managerial um, potential changes, Duncan, and that is Christophe Gaultier from Lille. What can you tell us about him and the possibilities for him going forward? Yeah, Christophe Gaultier has done, um, he's part of the phenomenal job that Lille have done uh, in the French League in the finishing second to PSG, qualifying for the Champions League. Um, Interestingly, taking over from Marcelo Bielsa uh, the previous season, who is something of a hero in English football at present, but did a horrendous job at Lille, uh, uh, was uh, a, a source of immense problems to uh, the organisation of the club and didn't um, buy into um, the, the strategy of a club which is designed ar- around signing good young talents, giving them a platform Um in the French league, uh, ideally in European football, and then selling them on at higher prices once they've grabbed the attention of the of the um, the world's top clubs. Nicolas Pepe being the, the the prime example at present, who's also a candidate for Bayern Munich, um, as we um, reported recently. Manchester United have inquired about his availability. Other clubs, Chelsea, uh, amongst them Paris Saint Germain, interested in him. Um, but Galtier came in to replace Bielsa. Um, as I say, finished second, uh, just been voted uh, French coach of the year um, and uh, included in his success as a 5-1 defeat of Paris Saint-Germain and part, essentially starting that terrible run um, that Tuchel uh, suffered in the latter half of the season after or when he was close to winning the title and after going out of the, the Champions League. I'm told that um, Gaultier um, is also a strong candidate to succeed um, Didier Deschamps as France national team manager if the World Cup winner um, is offered the job at Juventus and takes that job. Um, I believe there's been contact between the French Federation and um, I think uh, Lille would like to retain him, but um, given the way Lille operates as a club, were they to be compensated with a significant sum of money for their coach, um, they might be prepared to accept that. And I believe Gaultier has um, a strong interest in taking that job. So uh, another potential um, big change 
of, of managers in a, in a summer in which, um, as I say, because the, some of the biggest jobs have opened up and there is doubt over the Bayern Munich manager, over the Barcelona manager and over um, Tam Tuchel himself, um, the potential for um, a big shift in uh, managers from club to club is extremely large and, and I think we should factor uh, Maurizio Pochettino into that potential. What's intriguing, I think, um, as Duncan has pointed out, is that the um, list of elite jobs in management that may be available this summer will have a knock-on effect in terms of recruitment because why would you pursue a recruitment policy which was set out by your previous coach, indeed your recruitment department, without knowing who the next coach is and indeed what the next coach's expectations were regarding um, what he felt was needed for success and, re- and what he would request in terms of player recruitment uh, for his uh, job going forward. And that is something which extends to all the clubs, uh, Bayern Munich, Juventus, um, uh, PSG potentially. Tottenham Hotspur is a very interesting one because as we know that Mitchell um, Pochettino has effectively um, lobbed that grenade at Daniel Levy, as we reported last week, in terms of him um, putting his future into a sort of uncertain position after the Champions League final in Madrid on June the 1st. Uh, There's interest in Juventus in Pochettino. There's interest in Pochettino uh, with PSG as well. Um, And also, of course, Daniel Levy will be trying to retain his services for Tottenham Hotspur. So what we have is a a, a merry-go-round, which would be a catalyst for a then-player merry-go-round as well. And Pochettino himself is probably central to this, Duncan, in terms of um, we know that he uh, he hasn't made his mind up of what he will do after the Champions League final. And clearly he has and will have more offers this summer. Um, Do you think that that decision of Pochettino will have a, a, a... big influence on what we're talking about in terms of the actual transfer of players? I think so. Um, I mean, obviously, if Pochettino manages to manufacture an exit from Tottenham Hotspur, then it, it makes a big difference to the English Premier League because then Tottenham will have to decide the type of coach and, the, and, and who they get as a replacement. Do they go for a big-name coach or do they... They follow the strategy they did when in hiring Pochettino and and sort of looking at the Premier League and looking at the uh, a coach who'd come in and done well with lesser resources and identifying him uh, as a replacement. Um, obviously, they they do not want to change. You know, they're very clear they want to retain the man who's who's done such a fine job for them and got them um, to within one game of of winning. Uh, the biggest trophy in club football. But Pochettino, as as we said last week, uh, is clearly signalling that he wants changes. Um, And the best for Tottenham Hotspur is that if those changes happen at his club and he gets that new plan he's been talking about, and uh, which would involve, you know, big investment in players, different transfer strategy, um, buying more experienced players, higher salaries, etc. But Pochettino is also himself and uh, you know, in interviews that he's given, uh, mentioning that he, he his managerial method would work well at clubs like Bayern, Manchester United, Real Madrid. I'm quoting him here. Um, but also, uh, there are other clubs that he would see as as potential um, destinations for him: Paris Saint Germain, 
Juventus. Um, I can tell you that Juventus is a club he has a great deal of interest in. He wants to coach in Serie A at some point. In fact, his family are Juventus supporters, bizarrely enough, given that he comes from Argentina. But um, I think he comes from an Italian uh, family and the, the support for Juventus was something that uh, was retained in his household growing up. And he's, he's told uh, people in Italy about that and how attractive the club would be to him. The other element, of course, with Pochettino is um, he's probably the, going to be the most expensive of all the coaches on the market to hire. Uh, one, because you have to compensate Tottenham Hotspur and the compensation will be huge. Um, we know what Daniel Levy is like to deal with when he uh, doesn't want a deal to happen. But also, I'm told that Pochettino's uh, wages demands wage demands will be significant too. So he values himself very highly and he believes that um, uh, should he be given a job at one of the top clubs and his um, his new salary should be commensurate with his status as the number one choice for that top club. So that complicates matters. If you're, if you're a side like Juventus, um, do you want to, who, who you know, spent a huge amount of their future budget on Cristiano Ronaldo last summer to get the best player in the world in their squad, do you want to commit let's say, 50 million euros in the next year um, to hiring a manager. Can you afford to do that? Or do you go for a cheaper option like Deschamps, who, um, who you could probably hire for 10 million gross um, for, for uh, at least a year, if not more, and then spend the extra 40 million on player recruitment as opposed to manager recruitment? Those are the calculations that these clubs will be making when looking at the managerial market this summer. And of course, with all this talk of managerial um, merry-go-round and replacements, Duncan, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the candidacy of one Sam Allardiccio. Um I know you're a big fan of the Transfer Window podcast, Sam. Get the uh, grada fired up. Uh, there's a few places that you could maybe find yourself this summer, um, although I wouldn't necessarily head towards North London. Moving on from managers to directors of football, Big bone of contention at Manchester United, <clears throat> but also elsewhere uh, in Europe. And Duncan has some news for us regarding the very successful Lille director of football, Luis Campos, who indeed uh, was available to Manchester United, but didn't seem to um, come off for him in terms of an interview. But he may actually be going somewhere even better. Is that correct, Duncan? Yes, I mean, Luis Campos was the man that uh, Jose Mourinho recommended as director of football to Manchester United. Um, Edward would refuse to give him an interview. Um, he has been targeted by Roma this summer uh, and offered uh, the job as Monchi's replacement at Roma. Um, I'm told he uh, has been interviewed quite extensively and talked to a lot of people at the club and, and made a decision that it was the wrong move for him uh, because Roma is in a major state of disrepair, poor squad, um, not don't really seem to have the resources to fix that squad. So um, would be a dangerous move to make as a as a director of football and a guy who's established his reputation most recently by creating that Monaco squad that got to the Champions League semi final and um, and raised more transfer revenue in a single. Uh, summer window than any club in the history of football by selling players like Kylian Mbappe, uh, Bernardo Silva, Benjamin Mendy. 
um, to the top European clubs. He's essentially repeated that trick at Lille, um, taking them to second in the French division and uh, identifying players like Nicolas Pepe, who've, um, who've, uh, who will be sold probably for €80 million Euros and upwards this summer. Um, Lille have again emphasised that, that Pepe's for sale um, and, and done clever things like bringing José Font back from China um, to be the heart of the Lille defence, um, essentially because he knew he was a good, technically capable defender, but mature, experienced leader. And, and that squad needed the balance of an individual like that uh, to round out its young talents and, and, uh, and deliver results in important games, which is exactly what they did. Now, that's not gone unnoticed. Obviously, it's not gone unnoticed by Roma. It's also not gone unnoticed by Barcelona. Um, I'm told that Barcelona have been in touch with uh, Luis Campos in the last few days um, to inquire as to whether he would be interested in coming to help them with their recruitment. Um, basically not to work as a sports director, but to work as what, what they'd probably call a football director, i.e. a tier down from the sports director is Eric Abidal. Um, and, but having principal responsibilities of... Uh, recommending, identifying, recommending and making decisions on player recruitment, which with Barcelona has been kind of haphazard over the last few years. We are talking about a club that put down an initial 120 million euros for Philip Coutinho uh, just 18 months ago and now wants to sell him. I've uh, taken players like Malcolm, Osman, uh, Osman Dambelli and had issues with them. Uh, Malcolm also available for sale in this window. Um, so they feel that they need to upgrade on the recruitment staff and have someone who could also act as a kind of link between the board and the players and do the kind of things that Jose Mourinho has been talking about were lacking at Manchester United in the sense of taking responsibility away from the coach to always have to admonish the players when things are going wrong. So interesting um, approach from Barcelona to Campos and, and interesting to see how that develops over the next few weeks. And also interesting, Duncan, in the fact that um, Manchester United have not pursued not just Campos, but several, you'd have to say, high-profile, very well-qualified candidates for that job as technical director at Old Trafford. And the latest name um, to be floated has been John Murtagh, um, uh, uh, someone who's currently works as, I think, Academy Development um, uh, director at Manchester United um, along and we obviously spoke last week on the podcast about the possibility of Darren Fletcher going back there in that role it seems to me that um, Manchester United are more interested in recruiting someone who will be um, let's just say um, easy for Edward to work with rather than challenging the current hierarchy with regards to recruitment policy and indeed the football philosophy going forward at Manchester United. And <clears throat> do you see that as, you know, obviously it was something that Jose Mourinho um, brought up as an issue with the club. And it seems to me that they are, I don't know, they're kind of um, backing away from being a club who actually want to appoint someone with the right uh, qualifications and experience and are more minded just to appoint someone who that the, effectively the current board can control in terms of the way that they go forward. I think, I think John Murtos 
title. I think it's head of football development. I think he was head of first team development at, at Manchester United for a while. He's someone who was brought into the club by David Moyes. Um, very highly rated in the game. Um, did a, a, a great organisational job at Everton um, and was a, was a major part of Moyes' success there, which is why um, he brought Myrtle to the club. I think also worked at Fulham previously, um, charge of the academy there. Um, and is well regarded by Manchester United. He's someone you quite often see in pictures um, in the papers when United are signing new players. Uh, he'll be the, the man who's escorting the player in, in, their, in their car uh, to the Carrington training ground um, before signing for the club. Um, I, I think, again, he's not someone who has specialised in the transfer market uh, in, in past roles. But he at least has a, a much broader range of experience in the kind of the organisational level than the sort of former player um, candidates that Manchester United have been talking about and uh, uh, whose names have appeared in the media. I think what's it, what's clear is that Edward um, does not want to cede significant control over transfers to a director of football. I think that's why you're not seeing um, people like Campus being interviewed for the job, because if you bring someone of that stature uh, to the club, they expect to, um, to have authority over transfers and to be the, the, the most important figure uh, in transfers in tandem uh, with the manager. Um, and I think also interesting is that United are, are now briefing that um, they don't expect uh, a director of football to be in place until after this transfer window is closed um, to some journalists. So uh, it seems they're prepared uh, to delay this decision um, on whoever they bring in until they've actually gone through what is one of the most important transfer windows that the club uh, has had to deal with in years. Um, so many problems to be solved, so many players to be shifted out. Uh, and it looks like the responsibility for that is again going to be with Ed Woodward uh, this year in tandem with the Laguna Solskjaer. Well, it was certainly be interesting to see how that plays out for Manchester United, given previous transfer windows in which managers such as Jose Mourinho, who you'd think have much more experience and indeed knowledge of the players that they need and want to sign um, were effectively rebuffed and uh, players were signed above their head. But um, last week we reported on um, Manchester United's search for a new goalkeeper and Duncan broke the story that Jasper Sillison, who is number two at Barcelona, uh, was on the list. Uh, but Duncan has a very interesting update on that particular search, um, it shows that Manchester United are indeed broadening um, that uh, perspective with regards to who they may or may not get. Duncan, can you tell us? Yeah, it's a, a piece I did for the, the Daily Record um, at the weekend. Um, they haven't, they're not just looking at goalkeepers, they've actually made a bid for a goalkeeper. Um, that's the Ajax um, number one, Andre Onana, Cameroon international um, very important part of, of Ajax winning uh, the Dutch title for the first time in five years this season and obviously the run to the very, very edge of the, of the Champions League final. Um, Ajax have rejected the offer. I'm told they value Onana at 40 million euros. I don't know whether Manchester United will be prepared to go that high 
um, for a relatively young goalkeeper. Um, but what I do know, um, what I've been told is that Ajax are actively looking for replacements for Anana, which suggests they feel that United or perhaps another club will meet their asking price for the goalkeeper this summer uh, and they'll have to uh, replace him. Um, I don't think they want to replace him. And I, I think also there's a, there's a, an element here um, which is interesting in looking at these two candidates who I'm told are number one and number two as choices to come in um, should De Gea leave the club this summer, which is both Onana and Sillison are uh, players who have both been at Barcelona and both been at Ajax. Onana went from Barcelona to Ajax and um, Sillison took uh, the other path. Um, and both are used to um, playing that kind of... Uh, last line of defence goalkeeper role where the goalkeeper is expected to be extremely comfortable on the ball. He's expected to be um, uh, happy playing behind a high defensive line. He's expected to be able to distribute the ball well to his teammates uh, and, um, and pass and try and pass the ball from the back to start attacks. So that suggests to me that um, Solskjaer um, has requested of Manchester United if we are going to lose De Gea who he's on record as saying he doesn't want to lose and he hopes that the contract situation will be sorted out De Gea will get a new contract and he can carry on um, being the best player at the club in terms of performance as he's been um, for years now um, but if he does have to replace him, he's looking for a different type of goalkeeper, he's looking for a goalkeeper who is more comfortable um, with the ball at his feet. I don't think De Gea is bad in that respect, um, but he's not on the same level as Ederson um, is, for example. And he's certainly not a goalkeeper who particularly likes playing behind the high line. So it seems Solskjaer is saying, if I have to change, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to change tactically and sign a goalkeeper who would be comfortable playing the ball from the back and playing behind the high line. And you can see the 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 reasoning there and you can see that that would fit into the type of football that um, Solskjaer played in Norway. My question mark though would be, um, do you really want to play that way with the defenders Manchester United have? Uh, can you really see um, playing a high line with Phil Jones, Chris Smalling, Luke Shaw, who um, is probably one of the worst defenders um, uh, to have played Champions League football in recent seasons in terms of positional sense. Um, would you do you want to ask him to do that uh, without with uh, just by changing a new goalkeeper? I think if Solskjaer wants to do that, he needs to make um, changes throughout the defensive line for it to be a, a realistic solution to to the way uh, Manchester United play. Because Manchester United have played that deep line because the the, the previous managers don't and the current manager don't have faith in the defenders to deal with fast strikers and to, to play the ball from the back and also to cover for their weaknesses in, in midfield. So it's um, it's quite a drastic um, solution that Solskjaer's proposing there. I think it's also clear as well that um, in not renegotiating or indeed in the stalemate they have with David De Gea and his agent regarding a new contract, the fact that United are now actively engaging with other goalkeepers suggests very strongly that De Gea will leave this summer. And um, it is remarkable, Duncan, that um, 
when you've got a defence which has uh, leaked uh, so many goals this season. In fact, I think United are bottom of the clean sheets at home league in the Premier League. Only two all season in the Premier League. Tells a story about their defence. Uh, only, only, Ian, only two clubs in the Premier League uh, had less clean sheets last season. Huddersfield and Cardiff. And um, I think Manchester United's defensive record in the league is the worst it has been for over 40 years in terms of goals conceded. So from that point of view, um, you've got to say that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has to look at his defence, not just the goalkeeper, um, who, of course, if they had, well, they do have the wherewithal to um, meet David De Gea's demands. And if they're not going to, then that seems ridiculous given the problems they have in front of David De Gea in terms of defending. And, uh, and therefore, it seems like the agony for Manchester United fans is going to continue with regards to the way in which not just the club uh, makes transfer decisions, but with indeed in how they respond to very pressing issues on the pitch. And that just seems you know, unbelievable because it would never have happened under Charles Ferguson. It seems to have continually been the case since that's Ferguson retired and there's only one uh, place you can point responsibility in terms of um, that not being addressed and that is at the Glazer family and Ed Woodward because they're not recruiting properly in the positions in which they need to improve and it's one of those it's a very very big window Duncan as you said um, for Manchester United they've got money to spend they clearly have a financial muscle which they can extend if they wish to but at this moment in time, um, the players that we've seen them being linked to have been relatively inexpensive and British um, in terms of uh, targets. Now, maybe that's a, a, a decision that's been taken by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the board with regards to how they recruit and they're going back to basics and thinking about you know the heady days of the class of 92 and how they constructed a team which would dominate um, English football and certainly um, be very, very important in European football for many years. But it's a big, big risk in terms of the way that they decide uh, to go forward given the investment that other clubs are making. And with yeah, that... You, I, I, think, I think you could go that strategy. You could say we want to be um, the, the, the top, the big six club that concentrates on English players or British domestic players. And, we, and we're going to do that and focus on our academy. I mean, Manchester United already have quite a high percentage of homegrown players in their squad compared to other teams. But if you're going to go that way, you better be sure it's going to work because you're, you're pretty much saying we want to beat Leicester at their game. We want to take players like James Madison and Ben Chilwell uh, before um, clubs like Leicester do. And we think that putting James Madison and Ben Chilwell in that team um, will be sufficient to achieve our goals, which, as Oli Gunnar Solskjaer has pointed out, are not to win the league anymore. They're to get in the top four. That's a realistic goal that they're setting themselves for next season. I, I like James Madison a lot as a player. I also think Ben Chilwell would be an improvement on Luke Shaw. But I'm not sure um, if that is a coherent solution to Manchester United's problem is to go down that route. I don't know if you take, try and take the, the best of the English players outside the top six, whether you can construct a team quick enough um, to, to get yourself even in contention for a top four place, never mind have a go at the, at the title again. 
And of course, after last weekend, Manchester United's problems grew because not only uh, have they won nothing themselves, but their noisy neighbours, Manchester City, um, won a unprecedented domestic treble uh, when they completed uh, that against Watford in a 6-0 victory in the FA Cup final at Wembley. There's a bit of a backlash though, Duncan, isn't there, regarding um, what City have done and how they've done it. And um, it's interesting um, we talked earlier in this particular podcast about the timing of UEFA um, putting out their statement regarding the adjudicatory panel on FFP last Thursday. And some people, and you know, it's their right to do so, have um, effectively said, well, UEFA were trying to um, rain on City's parade by announcing that on the two days before they completed the treble. Um, however, in the wake of what happened at Wembley on Saturday, there was a very interesting, um, let's just say, uh, tete-a-tete between one particular journalist and Pep Guardiola. The journalist himself cited said um, regulationary um, effect by UEFA and in it said to Pep Guardiola, um, have you ever received any off-book payments? And he received a very curt response and has since been, I don't know, I think coruscated, I think is... is, is not a, an, an overly exaggerated um, term to use by City fans, uh, but at the same time praised by a small minority of journalists who believe that free speech and indeed the ability to ask that question in context was correct. What did you make of his response, Duncan? And do you think, well, what do you make of what's going to happen from here? Well, there's a lot, a lot of elements here. I mean, there's this sense that like, the claim that UEFA are trying to rain on um, Manchester City's parade is a strange one because UEFA could have announced it earlier. Imagine, imagine what happens if UEFA announces the um, referral to its adjudicatory chamber um, ahead of Manchester City's uh, second last game in the Premier League when they were under pressure to, to beat Leicester City um, to stay top um, of the Premier League table and stop Liverpool from winning it. And imagine Manchester City hadn't got that incredible goal from their outgoing captain, Vincent Company to win the match and Liverpool had ended up winning the league. Then can you, you know, imagine what the Manchester City response would be in terms of UEFA um, act, actually doing something while they were fighting their league campaign, um, which could be seen to have... Uh, an emotional, psychological impact on them and then could be correlated them to them failing to win the Premier League. So, I, I mean, I don't... If anything, I think UEFA have waited until the league campaign was over to announce this. Um, they, are, they were within the right to announce it any time they liked in terms of once the, uh, the investigatory chamber had made their decisions and, and advised that um, they felt there was a, a case against Manchester City and that, um, and that punishments, uh, including up to and including a Champions League ban, should be considered by uh, the judges uh, for, for this season. So that they've left it until a period in which it was a game against Watford, which everyone expected them to win, uh, which they did convincingly in the end. They've got their treble. Uh, never never done before the domestic treble. They are top of the game in England. They've conquered the English game in a way no one has ever done before, playing beautiful football. And they've had lots of plaudits for it. In terms of 
Rob Harris from AP's question to Pep Guardiola. Um, I think it was entirely justified for the reasons we've just been talking about. One, two days previously on the Thursday, UEFA had announced that Manchester City would be referred to their adjudicatory chamber. So the topic was uh, fresh. Um, the fact that Roberto Man- there is evidence that Roberto Mancini was uh, paid off book um, in Abu Dhabi uh, when he was manager of Manchester City. As we talked about on our podcast on Friday, and Kevin Affleck gave us some some interesting detail about how often he saw um, Roberto Mancini uh, in his supposed advisory role at Al Jazeera um, during his time at Abu Dhabi, which was uh, never. Um, So there's documentary evidence that's been presented publicly that Manchester City did that with a previous manager. Therefore, it's a a realistic question, a legitimate question to ask the current manager if he's paid in the same fashion. Um, Rob Harris, I'm told, had put those questions to Manchester City in November in writing and has yet to receive a reply from Manchester City as Manchester City have refused to answer the vast majority of questions that have been put to them about this uh, large uh, trove of evidence that they broke um, UEFA financial fair play rules. So this is Pep Guardiola's potential salary we're talking about. It's an easy question for him to answer. He can say, no, I've not, all my money comes from Manchester City. All, I'm only paid by Manchester City Football Club. And then he can get angry about um, Rob Harris asking the question if he likes. But the interesting thing was he didn't say no. He avoided answering the question, which, of course, um, will bring further scrutiny to the matter. The criticism that Rob Harris should not have been um, asking that question after City had won the treble, I think, ignores the point that City had just done something historic, something they take great pride in, and being the first club to win all three trophies. In fact, City want to present it as winning all four trophies. So the Community Shield is now being sort of thrown in there as a as a major trophy and it being called a quadruple by the club. Now, if you've just seen a team win a treble or a quadruple, if, if Manchester City want to call it that, and they've just done it winning 6-0, which is the biggest score in an FA Cup final for over a century, I believe, then the analysis is going to be, how did this happen? And you can't do that analysis properly without asking about the funding of the club you know, this is a club which has the most expensive squad in the history of football in terms of transfer fee uh, committed. And you can't do it without asking the question, did they break financial rules? Did they break competition rules to achieve this? And they're being investigated by the FA, the Premier League, UEFA and FIFA simultaneously over rule breaches. So that, as a journalist, is an entirely justified question, I think entirely justified area to address in your analysis and a question to put to the coach after he's achieved, achieved, achieved that feat. You know, we're not here to be cheerleaders and say, oh, wonderful, brilliant, it's fantastic, um, let's ignore how it happened. Our job is also to explain how it happened um, and ask about um, legitimate uh, ongoing investigations into the club's behaviour, which are relevant to that success. And I think the response um, to Rob Harris, not at all surprising, but very poor. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm told and I've actually seen a death threat that was um, sent to Rob Harris 
as a result of him asking that question in the press conference. And when it gets to the stage that reporters are being sent death threats over social media, over asking a legitimate press uh, question in the press conference, we've really got to ask about the, um, about the, the atmosphere around the club um, and the way that that, uh, that, that, they, that club being investigated for their behaviour in football is being presented and, uh, and defended um, by certain people. That's certainly the case, Duncan. I, I, I agree with you. It's sad <clears throat> to see that um, a journalist who's asking a, a purely legitimate question in context in a week when Manchester City um, have won the treble, but also in a week when they've been cited by UEFA's own adjudicatory panel in terms of FFP, um, it's not the case that uh, journalists should be criticised of men receiving death threats for that. Uh, in fact, it's abhorrent and uh, it's certainly against the principles of free speech, which we, I think, hold very dear in this country. Um, I don't believe that um, the Guardiola uh, stroke team's performances, which have led to this unprecedented domestic treble, have been in any way demeaned by asking a question in a press conference, which some people, including Pep Guardiola himself, um, ridiculed by saying, honestly, you're asking me this today. And it's as well, oh, there's a right time and a wrong time to ask a question, which is actually concurrent and uh, very, very significant with regard to what had happened in the same week. So it's just, it's just a bit odd. And it doesn't, for me, it doesn't smell right. Um, and I do believe that we need to protect the objectivity of the press rather than, as you said, just be cheerleaders and for a team who have performed brilliantly and we give them their accolades and credit for that. But it's certainly not the case that we should not be um, in any way gagged with regards to asking difficult questions and uh, being allowed to do so in an open press conference. Um, so yeah, obviously- we, should, we should also add here that, that that was probably the last opportunity to put that question to Pep Guardiola for several months. And that is probably the last open press conference he will do until pre-season with Manchester City, which is another reason why the, the timing um, of, of the question is entirely legitimate, in my view. Well, we congratulate Manchester City on their historic season and uh, hope they enjoy their uh, parade around Manchester this evening uh, on the open-top bus. Um, if any of you want to ask the same question to Pep Guardiola, he'll be on that bus. You can shout up to top down and see if he can answer. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure he'll give you any better answer he gave to Rob uh, on Saturday. So from the heroes of the Etihad to the heroes and villains of the Transfer Window podcast for the last few days, uh, I'm going to throw the first one over to Duncan in terms of villain of the piece. Uh, please, Duncan, let us know who you think transgressed the uh, whole... Um, let's just say, sort of romance of the FA Cup by killing it in, I think it was learning about the 15th minute. <laughs> yeah, I think this, this villain award is actually one that, um, that the recipient will be pleased to have because I, I, my choice would be Ederson um, being kind of the pantomime villain of the FA Cup final for producing what was an incredibly um, good save uh, to stop uh, Watford's Pereira uh, when he was one-on-one with him in front of goal at nil-nil um, with a, uh, and 
with a, a, a good quality finish, I think the Watford player um, produced there, but Ederson managed to shift his leg and, and turn it around the post, which kind of underlines how good he's been this season. And even Pep Guardiola himself in the press conference uh, post-match said that that moment uh, made a significant difference to how the, the match went. And if, obviously, Javi Gracia's plan was to sit in, score a goal on the counter and defend from there. And um, and that was Watford's biggest chance. If it goes in, maybe we have a different outcome. Certainly not a 6 nil thrashing. So so villain of the week is Ederson. Um, and uh, that'll probably be of amusement to some Manchester United in the Manchester United camp who, who like to draw comparisons between Ederson and, um, and a certain James Bond villain of, of, uh, of past uh, film history. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, I'm very um, pleased uh, to say that uh, I get the chance to uh, choose Hero of the Week. The obvious candidate was um, Vincent Company, uh, having concluded what has been a spectacular career um, at Manchester City um, by announcing his departure and leaving to take up the coach manager, uh, sorry, coach player post at Anderlecht, his first club. A man who I think has... Um, distinguished himself in the English game, um, not just on the field, but off the field as well, um, with his empathy for individuals, for charities, and with his dignity in the way that he has uh, dealt with other players and indeed his own players. Now, unfortunately, I can't give that award to him because I gave him that award last week uh, for his game <laughs> against Leicester City. <clears throat> so I've been banned from presenting the, the award twice in one week to, to uh, the great... Uh, VK. So instead, I'm going to choose a little bit um, off piste. Indeed, if Kilmarnock had mountains, then it would be on piste. But uh, Stevie Clark, manager of Kilmarnock, who um, led his team to third place in the SPFL on Sunday, having beaten Rangers on the final day of the season, they will play Europa League football uh, next season. A man who is now destined to be the manager of, of the Scotland uh, national team. Uh, and God knows the Scotland national team need a hero to lead them. So um, for his uh, speech on the pitch at the end of the game, in which he said bye-bye Rangers and bye-bye Celtic, in quoting the old firm hegemony uh, of Scottish football, I think he deserves that. But he deserves it more for the fact that he has absolutely been exceptional in um, rekindling a failing club's fortunes in a league, which, let's face it, uh, you know, needed to uh, challenge not just Celtic Rangers, but even Aberdeen, who they finished above uh, yesterday in the SPFL to, to achieve European football. So, Stevie Clark, uh, we will we don't have a trophy for you because you're not you're not won the donkey, but we will certainly send your congratulations on a remarkable uh, time in charge of Kilmarnock and wish you all the best uh, in the future, which we believe will be a Scotland manager. Now, with that, we will bring this particular Transfer Window podcast to a close. If you want to continue the debate, then please do. We love to be in touch with you guys. We love to get your comments and your opinions. And please do so at our own account, which is at Transfer Podcast. Uh, With Duncan is at Duncan Castles and with me at Garbo SJ. We will be back on Wednesday with your questions answered. But in the meantime... If you've enjoyed this podcast, and we know thousands of you do, indeed, more thousands by the week are doing it, please go to iTunes, give us a five-star rating, as this helps us to enlarge this community and 
it effectively enlarged the debate as well, which, of course, is what this is all about. For now, that's all we have, but we will be back on Wednesday, as I said, with your questions answered. So for now, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.